I invite uh, all of you to turn uh, in your copy of God's Word to Luke uh, chapter 7, or in the Pew Bible, you can find the text, page 863. Uh, The question, where uh, do you discover uh, God's voice? Uh, Yes, obviously in creation. Uh, There's a a beauty that testifies uh, generally of God's character that he reveals to us. Uh, in creation, but uniquely we hear and encounter God's word, His voice in this, yes, this timeless text. It's a, it's a text that um, is bread for our souls. It's wisdom and light for our path. It is truth that provides clarity. It's a window into the past. It is uh, at times a mirror in which we see ourselves. It is a drama where we see uh, God's story and love on display. Uh, it is good news uh, for for broken people and a broken world. I could go on and on and on about this text that we encounter. Let me encourage you. Uh, I, I, I hope that this is not the only time during the week that you are opening God's word. I, I, I want to encourage you to be in God's word, whatever shape that takes, listening to it, reading it, meditating, singing it, uh, but encountering and listening for God's voice to us. That's it. Of course, assuming that you want to hear the voice of God. Um, I, I realize that, uh, you know, hopefully there are times that we are dissatisfied with uh, all the voices that we are hearing, the distractions, the detours of the busy lives that we ourselves uh, create and carry on. Some of you are like me, though. Uh, you read the scriptures and uh, you struggle at times. Uh, You struggle with questions. You struggle with doubts. And so I think our text this morning speaks to that uh, uniquely. So I invite you. I know you just sat down, but please, again, in deference to his word, let's stand. Luke chapter seven. We'll begin in verse 18. Jesus has just performed some remarkable uh, miracles, not the least of which is raising a boy from the dead. Verse 18, it says this, picking up Luke records. The disciples of John, that is John the baptizer, uh, reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord Jesus, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Verse 24, When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed simply shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in the luxuries are in in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send a messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, along with those born of of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Verse 31. 
To what then shall we compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For this... For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, well, he's a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thanks be to him. Let's ask his help. Father, right now we do ask that you would help us. We're so so grateful that this very day we have uh, the word of God written in our own language. That's something that not all can say. We have the word written in our own language, but we need something more than literacy to appreciate and apply it. We need your spirit. So please so please come so that we might see uh, ourselves and we might see Jesus clearly. In his name we ask it. Amen. I have uh, four questions just to break this down, to take up. Uh, the first one is, who is this prophet? Uh, the second is, what's behind his question? Uh, The third question is, why are some offended? And then the last is, how can we navigate uh, doubts? First question, uh, who is this prophet? Uh, According to Jesus, John the baptizer, verse 28, is the greatest person who has ever uh, been born of women. The greatest man who's ever lived, of course, save himself, Jesus. Uh, John the Baptist is the greatest man. But he's kind of been off the scene for several uh, chapters. Remember, Jesus came to him and uh, he was preaching in the, in the wilderness. And, uh, and, and John the Baptist, in his own humble uh, position, understood and knew that he was lesser. And he said to Jesus, I can't baptize you. You should be baptizing me. But he's disappeared, so to speak. He's not on the, he's not on the scene anymore. What has happened to uh, John the Baptist, this prominent prophet? Well, just to remind you, his prominent place and his responsibility... Uh, John is to prepare the way. He speaks a prophetic word. He calls the people. Hey, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. That is to turn. The best way to prepare for the king, the best way to prepare for communion with the holy God is to turn. And so he is baptizing uh, baptism of repentance. And uh, he is inviting uh, people to prepare for the Messiah, the anointed one, the king is coming. And so now we are... uh, and again, like I said, he, you know, he was wildly popular. He was uh, very much, uh, you know, sought after. But they've tried to squelch his voice. He's been uh, persecuted. He's been thrown into prison. Uh, John uh, the Baptist, that is. And uh, and even though he was growing in popularity, they didn't want to see the, the message spread any further. And now he's in prison. And now he's at, and he doesn't know it. But uh, soon to come, in a couple of chapters, we're going to find out that he's executed. Of course, by all means, uh, you know, it's, there's no doubt because his head's chopped off. And he's struggling. He, he's, he's, he's sending out his disciples to inquire of Jesus, who's uh, relatively easy to find, but he isn't in the city. Jesus is way off elsewhere. And he wants this question to be answered. Here's the question, verse 21, that they bring to him. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? So what's my next question is just that. What, what's behind the question? What's behind this question? Well, John knows who Jesus is full well. He's been declaring Jesus. He's encountered Jesus. He's humbled himself before Jesus. And he is saying, are you the one? Are you truly Messiah? Are you truly the anointed king and savior? I think there's two things not going on and two things that are going on behind this question. It's not one of these two things. It's not, first of all, a statement that's in the form of a question. 
You know those questions. You're not going to wear that today, are you? <laughs> well, that's not his question. You, I mean, the other one, the other thing I know is not behind the question. It's not operative. It's not saber rattling, right? You know those statements too, right? Those questions like, you know, you just you, if you don't straighten up, you know, we're not going on vacation. We're still going on vacation. <laughs> it's just saying, hurry up and get your act together. You, you know these things, right? You know how it, it how it's phrased. Should I go? Uh, should I go work on sending out my resume? It's manipulative at times. It's it's trying to. No, he isn't saying that. We know that you're the one, and so hurry up or waiting. It's not an expression of impatience or 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 anger on John's part. It really is a question. He is truly doubting. He's having a hard time coming to terms with what he's hearing and what he's experiencing and what he he knows to be true of Messiah. And so the two things that I think clearly are behind the question is one is expectation. There was a king to come, an imminent judgment and rule that was coming with Messiah. So he thought back in Matthew four, verse 12, it says, when John was arrested, Jesus fled to Galilee. Now, why, why is that significant? Well, it's strange because if the king's coming to crush rebellion and to, to set captives free, then why, why is he going out way to the countryside uh, way north into Galilee? Why, why are you going there? Right. If you're if you're going to if you're going to rise to power. I mean, the only analogy I can think of is if, if someone is an inspiring, uh, aspiring, prominent politician trying to, to, to lay hold of, of uh, influence and power, they don't head out to Idaho, some remote cottage. They go to where? To D.C. To the capital. And that's where John is in prison. But Jesus is not there. So it seems uh, strange. John has this dilemma. He hears reports of Jesus championing this message, setting people free, healing sick, even raising the dead. But he's in prison. He's on death row himself. You, you can sense the disparity and the, the concern John is saying, Jesus is in Galilee. Why is he not here in Jerusalem? That's where the vindication is. This is, this is not how I anticipate. If John were to, to give voice to this question, I think it would sound something like, this is not, I'm confused. This is not how I anticipated it flowing. This is not what I, I, I foresaw uh, you know, rolling out with Jesus. Jesus is not fitting in with his expectations. The, the other thing here, and I think that there's, uh, you know, that, that's a hint, by the way, that Jesus not going to Jerusalem right away, except at the very end to be crucified, is just showing that it's outside the box. Uh, and he doesn't fit expectations so often. But the other thing that I think is behind the question is, is an element of desperation. And maybe that's a bit too strong of a word. He, he's perplexed. He's mildly uh, desperate, but he is deeply uh, desperate or deeply perplexed. Notice John's, his disciples are not saying, are there other options? No, they're already persuaded. Are you the one? There is only one and we need a savior. We need, we need a redeemer. Are you the anointed one? Because we need one. It's not saying, is there, is there a different plan or we have other options out there? He, they know, John himself and his disciples know that there is only one. But tell us, are you him? And that, that sense of, of, uh, you know, uh, uh, being being so confused and perplexed is, a, is an expression of, of humility. We don't know what we need sometimes until we're desperate. I mean, on, honestly, any of us, until all other options have been exhausted in our own mind. Notice again, though, the beauty of Jesus. Jesus doesn't uh, d- Jesus doesn't respond. How dare you ask that question as if angry 
or, or just, you know, apathetically. Well, well, duh. What do you mean? Am I the one? Of course I'm the one. No, it's not like that. He is, he's merciful. He knew John. I think he responds to him in, in code, so to speak. He refers to the prophecy. He goes back to uh, the prophecy he quotes there. As you see in the text, he quotes in verse 22. Tell him, tell him what you've seen. And it's an echo of what he knew John would know from Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 35, where all of these, these things were happening when Messiah breaks in and the kingdom of God is, is there. These things happen. So Jesus is saying, in essence, in code, yes, I am him. Yes, I am indeed. But he's also encouraging him to be patient. And that's why verse 23, I think, is, is, is kind of a gentle rebuke, if you will, a merciful one. Look at verse 23 in the text. He says this, and to conclude all that in code, yes, I am Messiah. And blessed is the one who is not, verse 23, blessed is the one who is not offended by me or on account of me. Now, I want to go into what that means a little more in a, in a moment. But I guess what he's saying to him is, hang on, John, I'm not, what you, I'm not yet what you had envisioned, but bear with. Please, don't cast me aside. Hang on, John. The word blessed does not simply mean happy. Happy is the one who doesn't doubt, just believes. No, it's, it's more than that. It's, it's fuller. It's richer. It's, it's, it's reward and blessing that communicates a, a, a fortune of, of replenishing joy. My third question is, why are some offended? We, 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 we as human beings have a tremendous, let's, you know, let, let's really reflect for a moment. We have a tremendous capacity to, uh, to deceive ourselves when we're trying to justify things, right? We, we know whenever we're trying to accommodate our preferences or our agenda or our lifestyle, we can craft and mold and shape uh, a, a Jesus in our own image. How do you know, how does anyone, how does someone know with very little, if any doubt, that they've encountered the real Jesus. How would you know? How would you know? Is it because you had a warm feeling? Is it because you had a sense of fulfillment? How would you know? How would you know? Is it because you have a joy that you've encountered the real Jesus? I'll tell you how you know you've encountered the real Jesus of Scripture. It's when you're offended. Think about that. Seldom are people offended by a fabricated Jesus. If you piecemeal together a Jesus, a domesticated Jesus, one that, you know, always talks about love and hugs children and is uh, speaking of heaven. And the true Jesus becomes. When he's clearly presented the God man. The offense can set in. It becomes a rock. In our shoe or, or a large boulder, if you will, in our path. When Jesus says, blessed are those who are offended by me, the word there in the original language is scandalizo, which is where we get the word scandal. It's, it's, it's an outrage, which can be understood in this context to translate something like, those who trip up or stumble, those who are provoked. That's what it means by offended. I think you get the impression. It can even mean a trap. 
So, so, so again, in context, it would be something like this. In reply to John, John, don't stumble or be trapped by your expectations of me or your doubts about me. Don't get tripped up and trapped there. Don't be offended or provoked or challenged by, by the challenging parts of Jesus, the unpalatable part, uh, parts of Jesus in your own experience. Jesus, I'm telling you, is an equal opportunity offender. <laughs> that sounds so strange. Anyway, you think that a lot of times about what I might say. Why are people offended? Well, that's how the voice of God works. The prophets came declaring the will of God, speaking truth, and everybody has a love-hate relationship with it. (laughs) Right? Just ask John. Because John, John speaking the truth, he was despised as a result of it. King Herod didn't like that he was speaking into his family's uh, own sexual sins and perversions. And so he said, you know what? You're done. Initially interested, later repulsed and decided to take him out. At verse 24, after he says, blesses one not offended by me, it's, it's as if he has pivoted and now he's looking at the crowds. And it's at, it's at that point that Jesus here is commending John and he's saying, he asked him the question, what did you go out to hear? Did you, you want to just hear a, a weak, uh, waving reed or, or someone in soft clothing, meaning uh, a king, a royal person? No, you went out to see this strange person, John the baptizer. He was speaking truth, and that's what you would have wanted to hear from the prophet. But what, what he's saying here is this. Be it John and his prophetic ministry, or be it me, Jesus, some believed Others were offended, still believed. Others were offended and rejected. So the story is culminating in the person, excuse me, in the prophet, John, and in the person, Messiah, Jesus. Both are loved, both are, he- both are hated. And then when Jesus comes forth in words and in deeds, the works that testify that the kingdom of God is, of course, breaking in because of what he's doing and the fulfillment of Isaiah 61 and other places. There are many who reject. Even even when they see it. Even when they see Jesus give sight to a blind person. Imagine that. Now verse 31. Look at the text here. It says, To what shall I compare this generation? What are they like? They're like children in the marketplace. And then the, the verse there says, They played the flute. You did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. What on earth does that mean? Well, um, I, I think that it's really, in, in essence, if you think about it in the context of a, a small town at this particular juncture, there's not really any public uh, you know, carnivals or events. There's, there's weddings and funerals, and children are, 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 are you know, acquainted with this, and so they're having maybe a, a day where they're just doing some role-playing. Okay, let's, let's have a pretend wedding, and oh, you'll be this person, and I'll be that person, and then another person – you know, a little, a little ringleader comes along and says, no, 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 no. Let's not do something silly. Let's do something serious. Let's let's put on a funeral. And so we'll have a, a musical dirge. And then then they, they go on in their, their own little uh, play, uh, you know, story. And why is Jesus even highlighting that except to say this? You, this generation, are like a bunch of fickle children. You, you don't even know what you want. And even when you get it, you move on. You reject it. Your expectations aren't being met. 
The scriptures highlight a gospel good news narrative, a story, a song, if you will, and it's a bittersweet melody. At times the song causes us to dance, and at times in our own mourning and sorrow it's a dirge. The gospel invites us to mourn over sin. We highlighted that last week. It's a dirge in that sense. And yet at the same time, it calls forth for us to rejoice over our Savior in dance. And there's times when we don't want to do either of those. When people's expectations of Messiah are changed, when our expectations of Jesus are, are somehow not meeting our childless, child, in a childish way we are rejecting, it's not meeting our expectations. For them, both, both of them are cast off. Jesus says, yeah, you said this of verse 33. You said John the Baptist was a demon. And you said Jesus was just a party animal. And we don't want anything to do with them. This last phrase, um, verse 35, let me read it again for us. In culmination, Jesus says, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So wisdom is personified as a a woman, a mother, more literal reading of the text might say wisdom is proved right by her children. What are the offspring? In other words, he's saying the proof is in the. Thank you. Haven't eaten pudding in a really long time, but you get the point. It's there. Your sins will find their their way out. There is an offspring. Reject God's tune now. Because that's what the gospel is, right? The gospel is reminding me. I heard a, a British preacher say this one time. The gospel is reminding me of what I've been trying to forget. That in this world, I'm a dying man. There's something sobering about that. All of us. But it's good news. What satisfies our souls, meets our needs, shines forth light except the wisdom of God? And that bears fruit. Manifest the wisdom of God, manifest in the written word and manifest in the living word who is Christ. John 1 tells us that. He was, it was by wisdom that the foundations of the earth were laid, referring to Jesus. There is nothing or no one that both accounts for the reality of our broken world and yet talks of a feast that awaits us at the wedding supper of the Lamb and the perfection of the new heavens and the new earth, except for Jesus. Now let's 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 take a little honest moment and reflect on our journey and our walk because we doubt him. Don't we? We doubt. Some of you perhaps in theory, you know, right, right out of the gates, right? You 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 say Jesus Jesus is all fine and well, but he's just a man. Not not a risen king. And, and, and if that's the case, if he's not risen, then you're, you're, you're right. It's, 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 it's all foolishness. You don't even have to begin with doubt. You just reject. 
as you well should. But of course, if he's risen from the dead and you're seeking to follow him, some of you would say, yes, I love him. And yes, I'm, I, I desire to follow him un, until those junctures and times when it, he calls us to self-denial and, and to sacrifice. To sacrifice our longings and desires at times. That's the real Jesus. We struggle in temptation or maybe we have dark moments. Uh, maybe we're in the valley and, and we say to ourselves, is Jesus, is Jesus really the good shepherd? Does Jesus really have my best interest in mind? Is Jesus worth it? Or maybe we claim to follow Christ, and at present, we have no beef with him whatsoever. We're not asking any questions. We don't find ourselves in any kind of prison, uh, you know, like John. But neither do we have any passion. And so in that, in that moment, I think it's, a, it's an unconscious doubt, if you will. Because... We're not really showing that we certain with have with certainty that we trust his promises or his warnings. Now, now back to the, the invitation, right? In verse 23, blessed is the one who is not offended on account of me or by me. Jesus has every intention to offend. Pastor Tim Keller, uh, once reflecting on this encounter, says he wants us. Jesus wants us to feel the offense, but not take it. That's helpful. Again, the word blessed, verse 23, blesses the one who encounters the real Jesus, feels the offense, gets back up and presses on. Who doesn't say, you know what? I don't like this game. You're, you're disappointing to me. God, Jesus. I'll take my marbles and go home. Feel it. Don't miss it. Feel it, but don't take it. As in harboring critical thoughts of doubt and rejection. He doesn't meet our expectations. Jesus, let me say it. Jesus doesn't meet our expectations. He exceeds them. He expands them. The real Jesus. He exceeds them altogether. The pinnacle of this, of course, is at the cross. A place of shame and weakness and death and punishment and simultaneously an emblem of of victory for us, of forgiveness, of, of hope. The cross is where Jesus faces the ultimate challenge. Remember in the garden before he dies? Father, if there be any other way, could you let the cup pass from me? Jesus... Jesus has that moment of, of, you know, doubt, if you will, wondering. His mission is to be a substitute on the cross. Hear this. Jesus takes the offense. He absorbs it so that we don't have to. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus? Or have you concluded something about him in your head that hasn't? Well, it just hasn't. It's failed to change your, your hands. It's, it's, it's failed to change your affections in your heart. All right, so here's my last question, and just to try to make it somewhat practical for those of you who know and experience doubt, all of us do. How do you navigate those doubts? 
We still struggle with doubts. We find ourselves tripped up or tempted to take the offense or to pull away. We, we pull away from the blessing of Jesus. And I'm, you know, maybe you're here today and uh, you're altogether apathetic about it. I, I pray that the Holy Spirit would unveil to you the gravity and the beauty of the gospel and the cross. It, that's something that's offered to us. But if you're here and you are doubting and you feel the gentle rebuke of verse 23, blessed is the one who's not offended on account of me. I just want to get, leave you with some practical ways to navigate some doubts in the faith. The first thing is, don't devalue the feelings of, of desperation. Again, it's probably too strong a word. Don't, don't despise or devalue those questions and doubts that are leaving you rather perplexed. Sometimes it helps us to, to discern what it is that we really need. Let's be honest. Right? I mean, basic human needs are what? Our greatest human needs are what? And don't tell me love. Few food, what oxygen, okay? Oxygen, water, food, shelter, Wi-Fi, in that order, right? Something like that. You want things. But you don't see what you really need until you've lost things or exhausted options and you're feeling somewhat desperate. Our greatest needs, to be clear, our greatest need is to connect with the divine. I mean, in the scope of eternity, it's to know God. That is eternal life. So don't devalue what it might be revealing about us. When we are perplexed, first thing. Second thing, evaluate your expectations. Are they too big? Are they too small? Are are they true? Are they in keeping with the promises of Scripture? And then along the same lines, the third thing I would say is don't repress those thoughts and feelings. Express them and seek to articulate them. Talk to others who are wise in the Lord. Humbly sort those doubts and questions out. In the context of community, that's wisdom, not in isolation. The next thing I would say is listen, sustained study and reflection in and with God's word. See what the scriptures really say about who he is, not what you think he is. Talk to others about the meaning. The next thing I would say, I don't know if it's six or seven or eight, but here it is. Speak to yourself. Don't listen to yourself. That sounds weird. Okay, let me say it again. Speak to yourself. Don't listen to yourself. That voice that says, you know, my life is always hard. No one really cares about me. See, God doesn't love me. He can't. He won't. Don't listen to yourself. Speak to yourself. There's now, therefore, in Christ, no condemnation. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. In Christ, you speak to yourself. That's what the that's what the psalmist does. Soul, Psalm 42. Why are you downcast? Hope in God. That's speaking to yourself. Next, I would say, don't repress your feelings, but don't follow them. Don't let feelings take the lead. You will undoubtedly find yourselves on a jarring uh, roller coaster of reactions, highs and lows, with very little clarity. The next thing I would say is doubt your doubts. 
Question your criteria. Evaluate your motivation in trying to search out those questions and doubts. And humbly acknowledge that you and I are not the final authority on what is true. We're not the final judge. You're not on the hunt for a perfect answer or solution. You're not on the hunt for a perfectly cogent argument. You're on the hunt for a perfect person. And that is only Jesus. Last thing I would say in the context of navigating our doubts is this. That we would take them in prevailing prayer to Jesus. You take your doubts and your questions. That's what John did. John didn't, John didn't judge and discern and, and, and walk away. John's in prison. He's perplexed. He's troubled. He's in doubt. And he says, go and, go and ask him. We should take them. We're promised in Matthew 7. Ask, it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Jesus knows that we will feel the offense. But blessed is the one who doesn't take it on account of him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we look to you right now and we pray that you would let, uh, please uh, allow your spirit to bear fruit in our lives, especially uh, right now the fruit of, of, of patience, that we might not fall away. Show us, Lord Jesus, how you exceed our expectations and have mercy on us. Have mercy on those who are, are doubting in, in very low points, even close to despair. People who are, are deceived, people who are depressed. Lord, we remember today our brothers and sisters who are in prison on account of you. And the persecuted church and, and leaders and followers who are in places like China, and they, they, are, they are locked up. Have mercy. Cause them to persevere. Build up their faith. Thank you for their example. Have mercy. Lord, we know that we uh, are longing for something that is normal, but nothing is normal in a world broken and under the curse of sin. We do pray, nevertheless, that you would glorify yourself and show mercy to those who are, are sick. Longing to experience some of your healing. Longing for treatment. Lord, we remember this week as we've seen how India has been so hard hit because of the pandemic. Pray that you would meet them. Be merciful. Father, teach us. In our unbelief, we we struggle to speak the language of faith, which is prayer. But we're so glad that you taught us. You gave us an outline to pray. And we pray it now together as you taught your disciples, our Father.